Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a project for the unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Immigration has meant that America's demographics throughout the whole of the nation's history have been in constant flux. Today, the percent of the population that's foreign-born is the highest it's ever been, and we're headed, over the next couple of decades, to a majority-minority status. This is all good news for the country in terms of our dynamic economy and culture, but it's also led to a significant social and political backlash, the rise of nativism, and a decided turn to reactionary populism among Republicans. I'm joined today by Justin Guest, an associate professor at George Mason University and author of a number of fascinating books digging into these critical issues. His latest is Majority Minority from Oxford University Press. America has had a turbulent political environment over the last 10 years, at least. And a lot of that seems to be driven by worries about immigration and worries about demographic change. So maybe we start there. What What is happening demographically in America? Yeah, turbulent is the, uh, <laughs> I think, the understatement of the week, Aaron. Um, demographically, what is happening in the United States is on the one hand, um, completely ordinary and mundane, but on the other hand, you know, anomalous and, and, and extraordinary. Um, it just depends on your outlook. So, you know, from, you know, the most hyperbolic way of looking at things is that, uh, the foreign born population of the country has reached, uh, about 14%. Uh, of our national population in the United States. And that is about as high as it has ever been in the nation's history. Um, it, the last time it approximated this was you know, close to the turn of the 20th century, um, a very long time ago, another period when we witnessed a lot of political turbulence and nativism. Um, we are also approaching what has been dubbed a majority-minority milestone demographically, where people of ethnic and racial minority backgrounds um, uh, are approaching a, 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 a milestone in which, in about 20 years, uh, in which they might be of equal population size and share um, to white people in the country. Uh, again, depending on how you define those boundaries, um, but nevertheless, this is, a, this is the way that the U.S. Census Bureau um, thinks of race and ethnic, and ethnic differences. So those are pretty extraordinary milestones, right? The, the highest foreign-born population historically and this momentous uh, demographic milestone. On the other hand, why is this mundane? Well, first, um, if you take a look at other countries around the world, uh, there are many other countries that are way beyond 14% foreign-born today not just historically, but right now, you know, Switzerland, Canada, Australia, all of which are democracies are in the high twenties or even approaching 30% foreign born. Um, I think Canada is actually slightly lower. I think they may be in the mid twenties now. Um, and then you have other countries that are not democratic, um, but that have, are, are near 90% foreign born like, uh, Qatar and, and, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East region. Now, that's a bit of apples and oranges because the immigrants who are coming into those countries don't have the same um, access to social, civil, and political rights as they do in democracies. 
Um, nevertheless, 14% is dwarfed by what we are seeing in you know elsewhere in the world. Um, and then from the perspective of the majority-minority milestone, um, in some ways, this is a story of, of American demographic history because we've also kind of been there before too. Um, the real difference is just that the definition of whiteness has changed. If we keep the definition of whiteness from the 19th century, which really only saw white people as those who were from Northern Europe and Protestant backgrounds, um, you know, we've been a majority minority country for a century, um, you know, but we've simply extended uh, the idea of whiteness to incorporate Italians or the Irish or Jews or Slavs or, 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 or Greeks. So, you know, these demographic milestones are in the eyes of the beholder, um, but that the, the fact that they are disputed in such a way um, really contributes to the, I think, the politics and the sense of anxiety and discomfort around them. So you said the tipping point to majority-minority is 20 years off, and American demographics have been shifting for as long as we've been a country. You know, we have different immigrant groups come and go, um, the the changing definitions of whiteness. So what – why has it seemed to suddenly become the driving issue of much of American politics? You know, I mean Trump's initial rise began with a speech about Mexican criminals coming across the border. Fear of demographic change was core to his message and the message of the broader populist movement on the American right. We have this – we're at this higher number, but that number in terms of percent of the country that is foreign-born has been ticking up over time. Is there something that suddenly caused a flashpoint? Was there just like a tipping point there? I don't think that there was a a tipping point, but I do think that immigration uh, epitomizes what has become the fulcrum of partisan differences in the United States, and that is that our parties do not disagree so much uh, uh, or their disagreements are, are less about left and right ideologies. And in, in some cases, you know, particularly on the right, they're incredibly ideologically inconsistent now because more they disagree on the orientation of open versus closed. And openness refers to an openness to global trade. Openness refers to perhaps levels of transparency. Openness can refer to certainly as relates to immigration and openness to um, you know differences in, in in social norms and values and morals. Um, and closed can you know refer to um, the priorities given to uh, heritage and religious uh, backgrounds and and, and norms. Um, closed can refer refer to global trade. Closed can refer to immigration, etc. Um, but immigration really embodies that difference, that orientational difference of open versus closed that really, I think, best encapsulates the difference between the left and right in American politics today. And so if it isn't necessarily the fulcrum of our politics, because goodness knows Americans are disagreeing on a variety of other matters, whether it's, you know, abortion these days, climate change, what to do about inequality, access to health care. All of these are major issues and sources of disagreement among uh, American constituencies. But immigration is a proxy battle uh, in a in a grander 
um, dispute between political parties. And as a result, it is a sort of litmus test for your partisan preferences. So if we kind of have this this part of this is kind of a fear of difference. Things are changing. The people I, when I look around the country, it looks the people in it look different than what I'm used to, or than the people who are immediately near me or in my small community and so on. Is this about foreignness, which is what we've been talking about, that it's 14% foreign-born? Is it about ethnicity and culture? So these people come from places where suddenly like, I might hear people speaking a different language than me, or they're attending a, a different kind of religious service than I'm used to, or so on. Or is it about race? That they their skin color is different, so I don't mind immigrants from places where they look like me, but I have a problem with pe- places where they don't. I think that these possibilities are in many ways inextricable from each other, and they certainly it certainly depends on you know the 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 voter that you're speaking to at the moment, and and they may press on the salience of one component or another. One of the things that you haven't mentioned is. Uh, legality. Um, many voters, when prompted, discuss their their you know disillusionment with the American immigration system because we tolerate so much unauthorized entry and visa overstays, um, and that we are not actively enough um, removing uh, immigrants who violate the terms of of, of their entry. Um, and but again, even that I think is also inextricable from the fact that the people we're discussing are from foreign places and have different complexions and potentially social norms and cultural values, at least, or are perceived to have differences in those ways. Um, I, I, I think they are all very much interrelated. And, um, you know, certainly there have been some studies uh, that have tried to sort of piece this apart uh, and pull apart these different strands of logic. Um the general conclusion is that cultural threat is a major component of that, and that is absolutely, you know, uh, uh, related to racial and ethnic differences among immigrants. Um, it also relates, again, I would say quite inextricably to class, because there is also a perception that immigrants are not bringing skills uh, or, um, you know, entering into highly skilled work in the country in ways that could advance the economy and fill certain labor shortages. They, they, they see immigrants uh, in many cases as, you know, not being the best and the brightest from their, from their home countries, even though there's enormous amounts of evidence that actually disputes that and, and, and actually proves it wrong, that it's baseless, actually. Not only do immigrants bring enormous amounts of skills that we need, um, but they do so at all kinds of levels of skills in terms of educational credentials. Um, but the, the, the baselessness of that aside um, what, what matters, I think, is that even that class differences or educational concerns is also inextricable from, from race and ethnicity because there is a perception that those who, people who are coming from global South countries where complexions might be darker um, are disproportionately coming with fewer skills. And so, and those people are also the same ones who people perceive to be coming in with questionable legal status. Um, again, None of this is based on lots of, you know, verified information. Um, it's really about perception. But of course, everyone who studies politics knows that if politics were just about facts, 
<laughs> it would be so much easier to understand, study, and, and govern. Let me ask about that baselessness real quick because I think it's an it's an interesting conundrum, not just in this issue, but in in politics in general. When when someone says, you know, I I think we should probably worry more about immigration because a lot of people are coming in illegally or overstaying their visas, or because the people who are coming in are lower skilled and are going to need to draw higher welfare benefits, so they might be bringing additional crime or other things like that. Is that a they are the person saying that is unaware of the fact that basically they're wrong. Like the immigrants aren't bringing crime. The immigrants tend to be higher skilled and so on and so forth. And so the answer to it is, is presenting them with the, the actual facts or is it more that those are essentially it's, there's like a sublimation process going on where it really is. They just don't want people with different skin color. They don't want people with different languages. They're uncomfortable with difference, but they know that saying that has like low social desirability. So you come up with a reason, you know, similar to like in when gay marriage was being debated that people came up with arguments, but, Oh, what about the children and so on when it was really, those were just kind of pretextual um, or those recover for underlying, like more prejudicial reasons. Principally, it's the latter. So, social sciences have begun studying um, the effect of what we would call corrections uh, to people's views. And generally, the findings that I have seen suggest that um, correcting the inaccurate information that may form the basis of people's perspectives. Um, does not change their perspectives uh, thereafter. And so what we're probably thinking, looking at here is motivated reasoning. Um, people know how they feel, whether they feel a, a, a social pressure to um, not reveal their true you know, uh, intentions or their true feelings, I, I can't speak to. But it's what we, what we have seemed to find now among social science research is that correcting inaccurate information does not really change people's views. So let's turn to the the other countries that have gone through a similar thing um, and have seen you know, higher levels of foreign-born than, than the U.S. What has their experience looked like? Well, I think that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's apples and oranges because the Canadians uh, have a very different approach to immigration policymaking and admissions. Um, it is a country that um, innovated the points-based system, which is a form of what Donald Trump, I think, called merit migration, um, uh, or, you know, at least he's now credited with that idea because he made it, um, uh, at least popularized the term. Um and what that means is that they assign points to immigrant applicants for admission on a variety of attributes that immigrants possess that the government has determined are valuable, which means that the, and if you, you know, and if your points add up to a certain threshold, then you're admitted. And these points are given, you know, for all kinds of things, you know, um, uh, you know, English language capabilities or French language capabilities in Canada's case, 
um, you know, certain educational credentials, the possession of certain skills, uh, the presence of family members already in the country. All of these things give you points that add up to someone who is determined to be qualified for admission. And the vast majority of their immigration, of their permanent immigration, is coming through these kinds of points-based tracks, which is a form of labor migration, economic migration. Um, Canada also has a very large program of temporary labor migration. So immigrants who are not coming through the points-based system are able to get gain entry uh, on temporary visas that help shore up labor shortages and skill needs in the short run, but do not commit the country to, um, to naturalizing people, to giving them citizenship or permanent residence in the long run. Um, we have neither of these two programs. Uh, not only is, uh, do we not have the points-based system, we are not oriented towards what's called econ economic migration in the first place. We are unique in the world, in the United States, in that 65%, approximately 65% of all permanent visas are coming through family migration tracks. That doesn't mean that people are not economically helpful, that they don't work, that they don't have skills we need. It just means that the justification for their admission into the country is due to uh, or driven by family sponsorship. They're reunifying with their children, with their parents, or uh, or with their spouse, or they are marrying an American citizen. Uh, so that's family form formation. Um, 65% is an astronomically high share. I think the next nearest country, you know, is, is something in the 40s. Um, and, and that's, I think, Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. And even that may have changed now in Ireland. Um, so, you know, we are really unique in the world in this way that we do not prioritize economic migration, but rather actually we prioritize the family migration. Um, the other difference is that we do not have a robust temporary labor migration program. Um, we have a lot of temporary labor migrants, but most of them are effectively the undocumented, um, who sort of proxy what a temporary labor migration program would do, except that it's completely unregulated and operating in the shadows uh, of not only the state, but of society and is stigmatized. Whereas in Canada, they're temporary labor migrants. It's fully above board and known by everyone completely transparently and facilitated by the state. So we really govern the two the immigration completely differently. And that's just you know the tip of the iceberg. There are other ways that we govern differently as well. Um, and so what that has meant, Aaron, is that the perception of the Canadian public of its immigration system is also completely different. They don't see their immigration system as disorderly, as, as poorly managed. They don't see it as unregulated. They don't see it as chaotic, right? It's worth noting, of course, that they share the southern border with the United States, the richest country in the world, and not, um, you know, Mexico or, uh, or Turkey or, or Bangladesh. So that is a different situation when you have a very rich industrialized country uh, at your border that is effectively also a buffer for receiving immigrants coming from, from global South countries. Um, but all that aside, the, the, the effect is that Canadians do not perceive their, their immigration system in the same way as Americans. So that has created a different relationship with people who enter into Canada because there is a perception that not only are they supposed to be there legally, um, but that they were selected in a competitive system to be there. 
So there's this understanding, a sort of base assumption among Canadians that when they meet someone who you know is from India or someone who is from China or someone who is from Ecuador, that they have passed through a rigorous system of, of admissions that has deemed them qualified for entry in the national interest. We don't have that assumption in the United States because we don't have a governance system that would ground that kind of assumption. So Canadians, you know, uh, are associated with a very multicultural approach to to immigration, and um, multiculturalism has become a sort of trademark of Canadian identity, even uh, as a result. Um, but really, that is the residue of a very well governed system that has always, at least, attempted and, and sold itself as putting the national interest first. Uh, and we just don't have that in the United States. And so it's why would we expect such a residue? Does this points-based, merit-based system – so it creates, it creates a perception of a more orderly process and a national interest. But does it change the demographics of the kind of immigrants who are coming in? Because as we said earlier, there's a perception in the U.S. that it's all low-skilled immigrants. But in fact – Immigrants tend to be fairly highly skilled. Do our immigrants look different than Canadian immigrants, even though our systems? Yeah, I, I would be speculating. So I don't want to to assert something that I'm not certain of. Um, because what's possible is that, yes, the Canadians might be selecting on, um, on educational credentials and English language knowledge upon entry through that system. But the thing is that the Canadians also admit an enormous amount of refugees um, for their population size. And they also admit a lot of those temporary labor migrants that I mentioned earlier. And so what's possible, you know, and, and again, this is an empirical question, so we could find out, but what's possible is that the demographics may approximate the the American demographics simply because, um, you know, they are also pulling in a lot of people who may not be as ed- educationally credentialed. Um, so that is totally possible. Um, but certainly through their economic admission system, uh, yeah, I think it's reasonable to expect that they will be higher skilled and and, and, and more educated um, than the average person who is coming through the permanent migration, you know, governed system of the United States. And demographically, they're generally coming from similar parts of the world, except there'll be fewer Latinos coming into Canada. Um, but in terms of, you know, age and, 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 and gender, you know, I think that you'll probably see something that approximates each other. It's, uh, it's really about the system in which they are selected. Um, although there is a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that um, economic migration is gendered and that um, you, it skews male. Um, temporary migrants also skew male. But I guess in the United States case, um, you know, undocumented immigrants also skew male. And that's why I'm, I'm not expecting huge, you know, gross differences between the two. Family migration skews uh, more feminized. Um, so, you know, you might see that difference in the United States. But I guess my point is that there are lots of different streams and tracks uh, of entry into Canada and the United States um, that diversify, you know, demographically who's coming. So is this then the crux of, I guess, what we've done wrong regarding immigration in the U.S. is that we have this family-based plus more chaotic system, and so if we if we switched to a points-based system and we kind of had a 
a more regulated system, the the call them populist concerns about immigration would evaporate? Uh, I'm not sure that we have to have a points-based system to evaporate you know, nativism in, in, in the country right now. Um, you can have any system as long as it was rel- you know, orderly, well-managed, and, 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 and conducted in the national interest, with the national interest in mind. Um, I don't think that the actual design of the, of the program um, is, is, um, is the big condition here. Um, personally, I think that the points-based system would be excellent in the United States. Um, and it does not have to be at the expense of our legacy of family migration. Um, many people, particularly those on the left of American politics, um, uh, often uh, straighten their spine when they hear uh, about moving away from the family-based system. But a points-based system uh, does not need to invalidate our historic investment in reunifying families. In fact, you can maintain that, but just through a points-based uh, design. You could just say you get lots of extra points if you have um, family already in the country. Um, and, and and having a spouse already in the country or children already in the country um, you know, or parents already in the country uh, could be worth an enormous amount of points such that that plus a criminal background clearance and you're in. So, you know, it's just a label calling it family migration, right? It's a label calling it points-based system. Um, ultimately, what we really ought to have is an integrated system that weighs the different attributes that immigrants offer um, and makes a, you know, decision that is in the national interest. And you can do that while accounting for, you know, the, the, the establishment of family in the country, uh, previous visits, language knowledge, skill uh, uh, possession, um, high education credentials, cr- uh, clean background checks, but also things like previous visits to the country or the extent to which someone might be in a vulnerable position. They may not necessarily qualify as a humanitarian migrant, as a refugee in the letter of international law, but they may be vulnerable. And that could also be uh, a way of designing a system uh, in which we account for vulnerability without necessarily calling people refugees. So, you know, these systems are made by, 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 the, by bureaucrats and, and by policymakers. They are, do, are not handed down from stone tablets on Mount Sinai. You know, we have a say in what our policies are, and we can design a much better system. And if we did, uh, our politics would look more like Canada's than they, than, certainly than they currently do. One of the interesting things about rhetoric with American immigration or the objections to it is – Immigration, anti-immigration people often frame it as these immigrants are coming in and they're going to undermine American institutions, they're going to use our welfare, they're going to hurt our economy, and so on. And these look like the kind of national interest concerns that that you raised and said that a system like Canada can ameliorate because the immigrants have been vetted. And so there's a sense that if they're coming in, it's because they were in the national interest. But at the same time, as we talked earlier, a big driver of this is an aversion to cultural change. And it seems like in a lot of cases, particularly the kind of white working class, the core of the the nativist, nationalist, um, populist side of, of American politics tends to view effectively their own culture as the national interest, that we need to preserve our our Western traditional 
ways of living, which means Christianity and a certain kind of family structure and a certain set of values. And, and they, they identify that very deeply with the real America. And if that's a motivator of it, then these immigrants, even if these immigrants are highly skilled, are not using welfare, are not going to bring crime, are still bringing different cultures. And so it would seem that 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 problem wouldn't be addressed. Is there – but they get used kind of almost interchangeably. The perception is that they basically national interest and culture mean the same thing if you listen to a lot of the people on the right. So how do we how do we address that? Because it doesn't seem like the system you just outlined would get at the underlying I don't want the culture to change questions. Sure. Well, I think um, one thing we have to establish is that you don't have to have consensus to make policy. And if what is motivating the reasoning of people on the farthest right fringes of the country is an interest in maintaining um, the supremacy of white people in the country, whether that is through structural advantages or uh, demographic you know, uh, numbers or what have you, um, I don't think that we need to be so interested in persuading those people um, and that you probably won't persuade those people um, because they perceive an existential threat along racial lines and no one is going to, uh, you know, um, uh, endorse uh, at least no one, you know, certainly who's who's pro-immigration uh, is going to endorse a system that is motivated um, along similar lines. Um, what I am most concerned about, actually, is that there is a substantial number of of native-born white Americans um, who may or may not be working class, um, but they are discomforted by demographic change. They are anxious about the future of the country. They may even feel a lack of belonging. They may feel like strangers in their country at times. And yet they are not white supremacists. They are not necessarily even anti-immigration, but they are certainly um, discomforted and anxious about the trends that they see. Those are the folks who actually most need to be brought along. Um, those are the folks who can be brought along. Um, many of them will have friends uh, and maybe even family members who are foreign-born. They may have coworkers and, and they may have neighbors who are foreign-born or who are from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and so they may be, and so they may actually even be cognizant of the value that immigration brings and embrace a diversifying country in theory, but in practice. Um, feel a sense of alienation and and feel a sense of anxiety. Those are the folks we need to be bringing on. And I think that one of the critical issues um, among the immigrant rights movement and and pro-immigration um, constituencies in the United States is that we conflate those anxious folks um, with white supremacists and with white nationalists. And that has really undercut the ability of, of the pro-immigration movement in the United States to undertake outreach to precisely the people who I think they need to be bringing along. Um, if your listeners are interested in more about this, I recently published an essay uh, just this week uh, with Politico magazine uh, about how the expiration of Title 42 regulations at the border is a reality check 
for the immigrant rights movement and uh, immigrate, immigration politics in the United States more broadly. And really, the, the, the critical error that this all exposes is that our governance has been completely paralyzed. Our policies are stuck in a sort of political formaldehyde precisely because the pro-immigration movement and policymakers have been unwilling and in many cases uninterested in trying to actually persuade people who are anxious and anxious for reasonable reasons, not because they're racists, but because their societies are changing and they feel unconsulted and they feel um, uh, and they don't have a great relationship yet with the people who are the agents of that change. But that is that is something that can be addressed. And people would rather not address it and instead castigate them and condemn them as racists. What does that outreach look like? So if I'm someone who has non-racist, non-white supremacist reasons for nonetheless feeling concerned about this cultural change, feeling a little bit alienated, and you are the immigration advocate talking to me, what are you telling me to assuage my concerns? Well, I think that there's up until now been a um, reluctance to invoke the politics of heritage, um, to revere people who are um, rooted in the United States uh, among the pro-immigration movement. Um, and I'm not totally sure why, actually, because reassuring people who are native-born uh, of their status, of their enduring status in the country, that of their residents and of their ancestors, um, is not mutually exclusive to embracing newcomers, to welcoming someone who is a foreigner. And you can do both. So I do think that um, a lot of a lot of good can be done um, by incorporating a concern with heritage and um, and reverence for the you know for for for. Uh, people with deeper roots in the United States. Um, and I say deeper because almost everyone in this country has immigrant ancestry. Uh, and that's an enormous advantage. And by actually revering people with longer roots, it acknowledges that no one, however, is effectively indigenous. I mean, even Native Americans themselves are so, today, are so uh, intermarried with people of foreign origins that we're talking about maybe a couple hundred thousand Americans total that can, that are presently claiming zero um, uh, uh, blood from someone of of immigrant background. I mean, this is a a very small fraction of the country. The vast majority of Americans, I mean, greater than ninety nine percent of the country, has immigrant origins, and so recognizing those who have deeper roots is not inconsistent with welcoming people who are about to put down roots. Um, so I think that rhetorically, um, that is important. Um, secondly, I don't think that we should be so uh, averse to the rhetoric of control. Control is basically a four-letter word in the pro-immigration movement these days, particularly in the immigrant rights movement. Um, order or management, these are not words that are commonly utilized. And yet again, um, you can have a very orderly and controlled system that doubles the amount of immigrants that we admit every year. Um, that is effectively uh, what was happening in Britain after Brexit, actually, uh, is that 
you know, the, the uh, government of Boris Johnson and the Tories um, used very robust uh, language, I would say even, you know, offensively robust language about immigrants uh, coming into the country and the need for control and management, but, you know, threw open the gates effectively. So nothing about order, nothing about heritage precludes our country from admitting more people and being more open to the arrival of foreigners. Um, so I think that those are two critical steps. The third relates to the engagement of people across social boundaries. Um, our country remains stubbornly segregated. So about 75% of Americans report al almost no meaningful contact with someone of foreign origins today. And that is remarkable, actually. <laughs> Not only do are we at this historic point of you know the, the, the share of foreign-born in the country being at 14%, um, but we have seen the, the, um, spread of immigrants, um, moving to the hinterland of the countries now the, their distribution geographically is way beyond the, you know, kind of classic urban coastal gateway cities of like New York, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami. Immigrants are everywhere now that 75% of Americans report no meaningful relationship with an, with someone who is foreign born in this era tells us something about the silos that separate us from people who are different from us. And that's because we are both residentially segregated and because we are not finding or facilitating enough ways for people to actually have contact. And research, early research, but nevertheless research in social sciences suggests that contact has a marginal but meaningful effect on people's views of foreigners and people across social boundaries. And so I think that undertaking um, moves that actually embrace the logics of heritage, the importance of, of, of reassuring people about control, and that facilitates contact, intergroup contact and belonging, uh, is really critical to moving the needle. By contact, do you mean, I guess you'd said that 75% of people do not have meaningful. So what what is meaningful mean in this in this context because just just like passing through often might i i wonder if would kind of trigger people's aversion to difference personality traits right so there's a there's a difference between an encounter and a relationship right so you know purchasing gas you know from someone who is across a social boundary is not a relationship so the proxy that I like to use is whether someone has shared a meal with someone who is across a social boundary. So, you know, and, and actually, if you take a look, uh, I advise um, uh, some new polling uh, that is often published by Axios called the Two Americas Index. And in there, they frequently ask on a monthly basis uh, about um, the share of Americans that have shared a meal with people across either party lines, so Democrats and Republicans, Republicans with Democrats, um, or across racial lines. And that number has not really been going up since we started measuring it. Still, you know, it's still a pretty young poll, um, but it's not a high number. And so that should and could change. On the status and heritage thing, my worry with what you said as a way to to establish these bridges or to ameliorate some of these concerns is that status is a relative thing and status is often a zero sum thing you know so a lot of 
a lot of the really reactionary elements on the right that we've seen, especially under Trump, seem to be status anxiety of, I no longer see my demographic, whether it's being male, whether it's being white, whether it's being native-born, as as high status as it used to be, and that upsets me. But if we if we invest native-bornness with status, does that risk creating a tiered system where immigrants are necessarily kind of always trapped in a lower status position, which as we've seen like in the experience in Europe, can itself lead to all sorts of problems? Yeah, it's a very excellent point. So when I say status, I'm not referring to um, de facto uh, or I should say, or, or even even de jure status, right? Like legal status. You know, I'm not proposing in any kind of way um, that there are some sort of structural advantages granted. Um, really, I think the status politics today are are felt status. They're interpreted, and so much of the politics of identity and culture um, is really about symbolism. Actually, uh, it's about do you feel valued and do you feel a sense of belonging. And that is actually not, and, and, and you don't need policy in order to render that sense of feeling, that, that sense of belonging um, and status from that kind of perspective. I mean, if you think about what Donald Trump did from a campaigning perspective in 2015 and 2016 and then thereafter to make white working class people who previously felt very much on the outside uh, looking into American politics from both parties, um, what he did was incredibly cheap. Um, it was really just rhetoric and sort of affirming people's sense of belonging, affirming people's status, rather than actually necessarily pairing it with meaningful policies. Now, in some and, and, and most of the policies that he did pair it with, coming out of the Stephen Miller wing of the White House, was not elevating the status of native-born people, but rather undercutting the status of foreign-born people. It was making you know native-born people feel better about themselves by mistreating. And in some cases, violating the rights of people who uh, were ethnically, racially, religiously different and from foreign countries. And, you know, that's hardly, you know, that's only a relative um, uh, understanding. And of course, it worked, um, but it didn't actually change the actual live status of the people they were targeting um, with the rhetoric, white working class and, and other native born people in the country. So, you know, it is possible to, to suggest status uh, and to convey it in ways that don't actually, first off, um, hurt and undercut the rights of others, um, but also that don't actually provide any kind of legal differences for other people or structural differences. We are heading into a, another round of presidential primaries and elections. It looks like this very guy who was elevating the status of of the white working class by targeting and abusing immigrants is going to be on the ballot himself again. Things feel very charged. Are you at all optimistic that we can that we can improve things in this area? And and then and we we talked about this a bit on the how to talk to people who are feeling alienated, but speaking to an audience of people who generally are in favor of immigration what's what's your advice to us over the next couple of years so 
in, in terms of my advice, I would return to those three suggestions I made earlier. Um, so I wouldn't change. I mean, those are really my principal um, recommendations. Uh, and, and, and they're definitely elaborated on in that political piece I mentioned. Um, in, in terms of Donald Trump's entrance into the race or, um, you know, and, and, and his likely nomination, um, you know, things on the farther right side of American politics are unlikely to change as long as he is the standard bearer. Um, because of the megaphone that he is able to wield. And um, and if he is endorsed as, as the party's nominee, uh, then that becomes effectively a Republican position. And it's, it's effectively non-negotiable, right? So you're likely to see the same kind of paralysis. But that doesn't mean you can't make progress from a public opinion standpoint. And in fact, actually, I think that Trump's first uh, administration and for the sake of immigrants and, and, and American democracy, hopefully only administration, um, what we learned, I think, was quite instructive. He, he overstepped what most Americans would tolerate um, with regard to the treatment of immigrants. And, and it actually produced elevated levels of openness to more immigration into the country. Um, in fact, actually, the the level the, the the share of Americans that were supportive of increased levels of immigrants or maintaining present levels of immigrants in the, in the country peaked underneath Donald Trump, and I think it's because of two reasons. One is that he overstepped the boundaries of what people deem to be ethical and humane treatment of other people. And there was a backlash to that and saying, hey, 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 look, I may be skeptical of immigration or I may have, you know, think that we're doing things wrong, but you shouldn't be separating families. You shouldn't be deporting people who don't have criminal records and spending state resources to do so. We shouldn't be halting immigration completely at our border. You know, we still need immigrants, et cetera. So that is one dynamic. The other dynamic is that... um, is that he conveyed so much control over the border with the, um, you know, at least initial construction of a wall and, and more money going towards border security that it may have also relaxed people's concerns about immigration because they said, okay, it's actually being managed now. Um, that is instructive for the future. It shows what conveying order and management persuasively can do, but it doesn't have to be paired with the, you know, nativist, xenophobic, and occasionally racist innuendo that was part and parcel of Trumpism, right? But it was nevertheless effective at least relaxing people's concerns. And I think that Democrats and, and particularly the immigrant rights movement can capitalize on Trump's excesses to actually bring in new constituents into their camp but only if they are willing to tolerate the demographic anxiety that people feel and to consult those people rather than to redline them as hopelessly racist. You know, these are these hopelessly racist people, you know, and I put that in air quotes, um, are the ticket to comprehensive immigration reform because they are precisely the people who are standing in the way of it right now. Um, the country is facing a, a what is effectively an intensity gap in public opinion. The people who are against more immigrants coming into the country 
um, are a dwindling share of the population and of voters, but they are the people who believe that this is the biggest issue facing the country. And so if we can turn down uh, the radioactivity of this issue, if we can turn down the volume of the debate and reassure people, uh, I think that that's when progress will be made. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our Discord listener community and book club by following the link in the show notes. Reimagining Liberty is a project of the Unpopulist and is produced by Landry Ayers. 